Okay, excellent. So uh, yeah, as, as Prudencio mentioned, um, I got my PhD in material science at the University of Pennsylvania, where I focused mostly on physics and materials theory. Uh, I, later on in grad school, I was an affiliate scientist at Berkeley Lab with the materials project, which is where I really got interested in more sort of high throughput virtual screening and discovery of materials and molecules. Um, and artificial intelligence, uh, kind of as I became a, a core contributor with the Deep Chem project. And more recently, I've been a postdoc at MIT, uh, working with the Lincoln Lab Supercomputing Center and professors Connor Coley and Rafa Gomez Bombarelli. Um, and here I focused you know, more on these issues related to scalable deep learning and uh, AI directed design. So I'm going to give uh, kind of a broad overview of the sort of problems and things uh, that I've been interested in lately. And um, sort of the, the framing that I like to think about is uh, all of the amazing progress that's going on in these sort of fields of high performance computing, deep learning, and the sciences, and particularly chemistry and material science. There's a lot of really exciting stuff happening in those fields. Um, but they're largely disconnected. And I like to kind of occupy this middle space here uh, at the intersection of all three of these fields. In particular, there are a lot of really exciting new AI and ML methods uh, coming out all the time. If you try to keep track of them, it could be quite overwhelming. Uh, but if you're in more of an applied domain, like say chemistry or drug discovery, it could be really difficult to figure out what methods to use and apply to your problem and especially uh, apply them at scale. If you're doing, uh, you know, kind of interested in problems sort of beyond small scale benchmarks. And so a broad question that I'm interested in is where can we take lessons from fields where deep learning has traditionally been extremely successful like natural language processing and computer vision. And where can we apply those lessons uh, to chemistry and material science and where do we need to change things? Um, uh, or maybe not apply those things directly. So I'm going to be talking again in, in sort of an overview about scaling deep learning for atomistic systems with respect to a couple of different key resources, uh, including compute, energy consumption, and model size and data set sizes. And to do that, I'll be talking about applications to molecular property prediction and regression, uh, more specifically to machine learning interatomic potentials and trying to accelerate physics-based simulation and improve it uh, with deep learning. And um, I'll talk a little bit about recent work uh, on chemical generative modeling as well. So a lot of topics, uh, but really with the focus on you know, investigating how these different applications scale uh, with respect to resources and how uh, we can do that intelligently. I'll be focusing on geometric deep learning, uh, which of course as an architecture encodes the kind of geometric priors we care about in chemistry. It's also a nice term because it sort of encapsulates uh, almost anything that you might want to do. So it's quite flexible. I'll be talking um, about transformers and graph neural networks uh, in particular. And again, the, the sort of um, goal and approach here is to identify and figure out how to scale 
um, architectures that match the problem descriptions that we care about in chemistry and uh, you know, try to try to sort of replicate and build on uh, what folks have done in, in fields like NLP and computer vision. And so I'm going to be looking at how chemical transformers and graph neural networks scale for these problems. A framework for trying to, to start to understand this is called neural scaling. And neural scaling uh, is, is an idea that a sort of a bunch of large organizations, including OpenAI, DeepMind, and Google, have all contributed to recently. Um, the, the Stanford Computer Science Department as well has sort of put out a big um, sort of paper very much related to this. Um, and the sort of overall finding is that these large networks, you could call them foundation models. Um, if you don't like that terminology, you could just say, you know, a large network trained on general tasks in pre-training uh, that you hope to use for other tasks, uh, maybe a bit more wordy, <laughs> but descriptive. And so the key finding is that these sorts of models uh, in some limit obey simple power law relationships as you give them more compute, uh, more data, uh, or make the models larger. So that's shown on one of these sort of classic neural scaling papers um, for natural language. You can see on a log log plot these, these just like very simple power law relationships um, with respect to these different parameters. Why should we study neural scaling? Why is this something um, that folks are interested in that I'm interested in in particular. One finding is that when we take these large models, um, you sort of would classically worry about overfitting, especially to the sort of uh, small data sets that we're sometimes working with in chemistry and material science. But uh, it turns out that if you have a large model and, and you employ regularization techniques like early stopping, um, in a in kind of a, a clever way, these models can actually be more sample and compute efficient than a sort of one-off model, maybe a smaller network that you train for a specific task um, that you know consumes fewer resources, uh, but may actually be less efficient than than this other approach. Neural scaling, some sort of more recent results show that neural scaling provides maybe a sort of best case scenario uh, for model performance. It's probably not, uh, not the case that you can simply look at those plots I showed and sort of extrapolate out to, okay, if I just had an order of magnitude more data, this is exactly how well my model would perform. Um, that might not quite be the case. You might run into to bottlenecks, um, but it gives you at least a sense a very strong sense for the best case scenario of scaling. And uh, when you're evaluating a new model, if you just look at this sort of single point comparison of a small model on small data sets using small compute, uh, that tells, might tell you very little about how that's going to do uh, as you scale to, to new problems and bigger problems. And then maybe theoretically, the interesting thing is to ask, as we scale up models, you know, of course, Certainly from a physics perspective, we're always looking for this kind of emergent behavior. Do new surprising things happen that we didn't anticipate? Can we understand what drives scaling exponents? 
uh, and maybe take this so-called Sutton's bitter lesson, uh, which is uh, kind of about the fact that scaling up with respect to compute tends to beat over long enough time scales, tends to sort of beat clever architecture decisions. You know, maybe that's not the case here in chemistry, uh, where we have a lot of physical priors that are um, very mathematically sound to, to build in. So when we're thinking about how to scale atomistic deep learning, you know, what are the sort of knobs uh, that we can play with? Here I'm showing, you know, as we increase resources, and I'll give some examples for what that might be, uh, what sort of uh, performance might we expect if we take like a traditional model, let's say like a random forest or something, uh, this is going to saturate out at some point. The thing that um, in some cases makes deep learning interesting is that this performance uh, can continue to increase as you leverage increasing resources. So we might say collect more data or better data and then sort of extend this scaling uh, along this curve. We could innovate on the model architecture and actually change the slope of this scaling and get better performance for a given amount of resources. And then we could do all types of optimization with respect to uh, you know, our software backend, our hardware, um, you know, and again, kind of get better performance uh, for, for given resources. So I think these are kind of three key data model and computer sort of three key resources that deep learning uses to scale effectively. We want to see, you know, how, how do we do that? How can we enable that um, for atomistic deep learning? And in particular, here at MIT, we have a program uh, on AI-directed experimental design. And this is sort of largely, largely where I work. And the, the vision is really to span lots of different discovery problems from biotech to materials design and climate technologies, and you know, have some kind of um, robust general infrastructure that helps you along these problems and drives impact across the things we care about, like representing complex molecular structures, sampling large design spaces, um, dealing with small data limits, which is a problem we encounter a lot, uh, and uncertainty quantification. Today, what that looks like is usually we'll have some kind of domain expert in a field who will define a reasonable design space that might be you know, some uh, section or segment of the periodic table with elements that they like and know work well for their design. And then they'll help us define you know, what are sort of the criteria that will let us know we're doing a good job. And then the directed design system today is basically a neural architecture search framework. So given kind of this problem space and these constraints, uh, you can run you know, a large neural architecture search that will sort of find the best maybe graph neural network or transformer-based model uh, for the set of properties you care about and help guide your design process. And so this allows, you know, kind of people with maybe more of a machine learning background to have an impact um, across flexible domains. And then ultimately, from the design perspective, we're usually trying to identify solve some multi-objective optimization, considering trade-offs uh, with properties and identify Pareto optimal candidates. But is that sort of the best we can do or are there alternatives? So uh, one thing to think about might be, 
um, to move to more of this pre-training. Instead of sort of spinning up a new one-off network and doing this entire uh, development procedure for every problem and every property we care about, uh, you know, can we identify and build large pre-trained models uh, and fine-tune them to downstream design tasks and kind of uh, take, a, take a broader picture of this. To, to start uh, helping us to do this, we have been working on a very simple template called LitMatter um, that allows scientists to take their deep learning code and scale it up very easily without adding additional code or kind of worrying about a lot of the engineering infrastructure that can be kind of difficult and time consuming to spin up. So LitMatter will organize your model and data set code uh, very nicely. It allows you to keep the sort of rapid prototyping and experiment workflows that scientists love, and then uh, investigate things like scaling your model training, um, again, without doing sort of a bunch of extra work. And to do this in an end-to-end -end pipeline um, without changing your workflow. To demonstrate what this looks like, I'll talk about an application to property prediction. So here we took four different graph neural network models uh, and we trained them to predict quantum mechanical properties for a very standard benchmark data set, QM9 data set of small molecules. But we trained these models on over 400 GPUs. So here what you're looking at is uh, the training time it takes to train each of these models versus the number of GPUs that we trained on. So between two um, to over 400. And you can see that at least for some of the networks, we can achieve up to a 60 times speed up uh, in the training with this, with this multi-GPU setup. And you know, roughly speaking, a kind of uh, rough understanding of this might be that sort of the more complex the architecture is, uh, that's, that's sort of correlated with the available speed up um, that we can get uh, as we do this. And so what is actually happening under the hood here? Uh, to look at this in a bit more detail, we trained not only these GNNs, but also some more maybe familiar models, including large language models like BERT and large vision models like ResNet. Uh, I just sort of want you to focus on um, Schnett, circled in red here, and DimeNet, circled in orange. So these are two um, kind of commonly used GNNs for property prediction. And here we're looking at what's actually happening at the GPU level uh, when we're looking at a single node training versus very distributed multi-node training and what is actually being utilized on the GPU. So this is the memory and this is the streaming multiprocessor. And so maybe unsurprisingly, if you're familiar with these networks, you know, DimeNet um, uses much more of the GPU. Uh, it is a heavier duty network uh, that uses um, spherical Bessel functions and spherical harmonic spaces. So it has a much bigger memory footprint in general. Um, and it's a bigger model than Schnett. But so kind of interestingly, DimeNet is you know, really competing um, or out competing with these quite optimized um, 
sort of, again, heavy duty models like BERT and ResNet, uh, whereas SCHNET is maybe um, somewhere over here. To understand uh, how these models um, are actually performing as we scale up, we can look at the variance in the utilization. So here we're just showing DimeNet compared to BERT and ResNet sort of convenience, but what we're looking at here is the coefficient of variation of this utilization. So you can think about this like um, how busy is the GPU as we're training? Um, and you know what's what's the variance uh, in that busyness as we as we kind of increase um, the the number of GPUs. So for something like memory utilization, you know this is of course going to be really sensitive to things like batch size um, and the model size. So you know we might just try to kind of fill up the fill up the GPU as much as possible. Um, but kind of more importantly, we're looking at how does this variance increase as as we give more um, compute to training, more raw compute resources, and as this variance increases, uh, you know there are sort of bottlenecks and internode communication uh, overhead being introduced that's raising this variance, and ultimately that's what's going to determine uh, how much we can scale up uh, these architectures while still seeing improvements uh, versus when we kind of hit a threshold. Um, Nedam, there's a few yeah. questions. And yeah. Dan, do you want to speak up? Yeah, um, so I have a few questions and one of them was actually raised by Prudencio in the chat. Um, exactly about that plot, uh, how many uh, parameters uh, are you using for the networks? Um, are you using a constant number of parameters even when you change the number of GPUs or like what's the, the difference? Yep, yeah, so the model is fixed as we change the number of GPUs. Uh, these are all, all implementations um, just taken directly from PyTorch Geometric for kind of as much consistency as, as we can um, try to get while comparing uh, these different models from just a, 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 a sort of open source available framework. But yeah, the, the number of parameters are just fixed by the defaults in, in those examples. Okay, and um, how, uh, which method of parallelization on multi-GPU are you using? Because uh, like, are, are you parallelizing the features, um, the, the, the features of the network or the batch size? Right, yeah, so this, this is just the batch size. Um, we're looking at things like model sharding and other methods um, for parallelization as well. But yeah, this is just the batch size. So in the end, when you use, uh, like the, you keep the batch size constant, but you split it on many different GPUs. So if your batch size was like 2000 and you use 50 GPUs, you end up with 40 on each GPU, right? So, so here we're really just increasing the effective batch size and seeing like, when does that, um, when, it, so you kind of just expect uh, naive speed up by increasing the effective batch size, you just go through the training set faster. Um, mm -hmm. And here we're just asking, when do the communication bottlenecks kind of hit you? Um, and how much speed up do you get by comparing different networks? Okay, so you have like this, uh, per GPU, you keep the same batch size. So um, as you increase the number of GPUs, you finish your epoch faster because you're doing all the batches simultaneously, okay? Yeah. 
Um, that's it for me. Priyansu, uh, do you have other questions or no? No, that's all. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, and that actually is great. It brings up a lot of issues um, that I summarized here in that, you know, there are all kinds of different choices, of course, about um, how we can set up these experiments, you know, and we might anticipate them to have, um, you know, different effects on what this scaling looks like. So it's hard to predict <laughs> what this, what this scaling is going to look like based on those microscopic parameters. Um, so what we can do is kind of try try to understand and, and actually find that this scaling with respect to compute does obey simple power law relationships. And we can try to understand how do these different choices affect different parts of the power law. So do they affect kind of what we really care about, which is the scaling exponent? Um, you know, how, how much a network is kind of able to leverage increasing resources? Or does it more affect the offset? Uh, you know, just shifting these curves up and down should kind of um, correspond to the, um, you know, the sort of non-distributed training time. And so here's what that looks like for two networks, DimeNet and Schnet. And the, if we fit a power law um, that predicts the training time, so there's this multiplicative constant alpha that again determines this offset, uh, shifting these curves up and down. And then there's the number of GPUs n and some scaling exponent beta, which of course depends on the model um, and could depend on the learn learning dynamics, things like the batch size uh, and, and the learning rate, but not all hyperparameters. And for this alpha, sorry, there are a lot of uh, different things that could affect this. We try to model alpha as kind of this is an overall optimization that's shifting the curve up and down. So we actually control the clock rate of the GPU during these experiments in the amount of power that the GPU is able to draw. So we're controlling on the hardware level, um, sort of you know, the maximum amount uh, of power that the GPU is able um, to draw. And we see that as we change that, we just shift these curves um, up and down. So that is, uh, kind of modeling all of the different optimizations that might contribute to this alpha. So actually, this is a good place, I think, to pause before I start talking about performance, um, if there are any other questions. Yep, I think there is Simon and Dominic who has a question. Simon, do you want to go first? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, Nathan, just so I understand correctly, you said, you know, these indeed sh show this power law scaling, but this is not the same power law scaling we, we saw before, right? Like the, before right. with respect to model data sort of surprising. And here, isn't this just hardware scaling? Like, isn't this expected and completely independent of what I'm like, do you know what I mean? Like one is sort of a, 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 a learning theory thing. This is just, you, you, you spreadsheet across devices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so there are absolutely the uh, scaling laws from learning theory, which I'll talk about kind of next, getting into that next. Here, this is a hardware scaling effect, which is, um, I guess, the sort of expectation is, of course, there will be some scaling. Um, but that's actually maybe not uh, as given as, as you would expect. And in particular, um, both the kind of scaling exponent and how that depends on the model uh, and the point where this scaling breaks down um, is something that, you know, 
we don't have a good way to predict um, from first principles. So in general, you know, if, if we want to compare architectures, right, and say, uh, if we want to do the sort of huge scale experiments that we see with things like BERT and GPT, um, we need to be able to train on lots of GPUs and, and that could depend very sensitively on the architecture. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you go to the previous slide, please? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, here you mentioned that um, the curves follow a power law, but something I noticed is that uh, there are actually two parts here in the power mm -hmm. law, the first part and the second part here. And this yeah. is the case for every model where you observe this kind of uh, double trend and actually it fits the point much better than a single exponent. Uh, so so, so my question in here like, is that um, in, instead of defining a simple constant here, shouldn't we define like uh, this, uh, this uh, part-wise power law where the first one is uh, we see a good scaling from increasing the GPU and the second part we see a reduced scaling. Um, so basically in the first part here, we can see, for example, for PNA, which is the fastest method, uh, we have a lot to gain by using uh, eight GPUs and less, but then uh, it doesn't make sense to continue increasing the number of GPUs. Yep. Whether for other methods, this can go to 12, 13, 14 GPUs. Um, and um, yeah, I think uh, this, could, this could be a better descriptor of uh, what's going on here. Um, and something like, I don't know, this might be just my head seeing patterns, but maybe we can like, have also this kind of curve here that defines, mm. depending on the computation time, try to the, the initial computation time, try to predict how many GPUs we can, mm. um, how many GPUs make it useful for, for the network. Absolutely, yes. So that's like exactly how we would try to find a kind of end critical value for when this turning point is. Uh, that you would see, you know, sort of diminishing returns. Um, and that's actually a way in the supercomputing center uh, that we can kind of dynamically control resource allocation based on the network, right? So if that sort of N critical number of GPUs is much lower, like PNA, um, like you see here, then, you know, it doesn't make sense to uh, sort of allocate the, those additional resources. But yeah, that, that is exactly how um, we determine kind of that that turning point for um yeah sort of diminishing returns do you have a mathematical way of determining that uh critical point or is it just like looking at the points and uh yeah <laughs> nothing other than fitting to uh fitting power laws over different numbers of gpus and seeing where the fit deteriorates and and seeing you know this kind of for simplicity we're showing and to compare the exponents you know, we're doing it over the full range of experiments. Um, but yeah, we just, exactly as you did, just kind of add and iteratively add, you know, more data points on the X side and um, see where that power law starts to deviate for each one. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So I next will kind of uh, jump into, you know, this was, for, so we've talked about kind of hardware um, and scaling of training time, but of course, what we'd really like to get to is performance. 
impacts and how well these networks perform and how can we accelerate convergence um, and scale them up with respect to not only compute but model and data set size. Uh, and we, we know, or kind of we know from experiments um, that, that that's not trivial. So we need a way to kind of speed up uh, how we're even going to go about finding good, good ways to scale on these methods. So I'm gonna try something called training speed estimation uh, from this recent paper. And TSC is a very simple, um, nice idea where you approximate the area under the training loss curve uh, during the first, say, T epochs, epochs of training. So some limited amount um, of the total training you're going to do. And so this is just summing um, at the mini batch level or the training step level uh, all of the losses to try to approximate that area under the curve. And TSE is going to be a quantity that we try to use to uh, find networks early in training that are doing well as we change uh, model configurations. You could also, you could modify this TSC equation and say maybe there's a burn-in period where I'm gonna throw away the first E epochs because maybe they're not representative of you know, the total learning dynamics or you could do some sort of uh, weighted average, moving weighted average where I weight more recent uh, training steps more. Um, but in practice, uh, we actually find that all of these basically perform the same. And so TSC is sort of simple and cheap method for estimating the kind of converged or final performance uh, test set or validation set performance of a network based on the training losses early in training. And so in this original paper where TSC was proposed, uh, they showed a lot of experiments for neural architecture search in computer vision and showed that TSC allows you to sort of rank order models uh, very early in training and figure out, you know, which architectures are doing the best, which lets you speed up your neural architecture search. And we were interested in, can you apply this not just for neural architecture search, but things like hyperparameter optimization. In particular, our problem is when we're trying to scale up uh, some of these chemical, um, these deep chemical networks, uh, it's not the case that I can simply do my hyperparameter optimization and my model selection uh, on a single GPU for a small model and small data set size, and then scale everything up and, and hope that it performs well, right? All of that changes uh, as I scale with respect to any of these dimensions. So it really just blows up the search space um, as I'm trying to do this. So again, I need to be able to identify optimal configurations early in training. And so TSC, you know, previously was used to rank order models for neural architecture search while fixing things like learning rate and batch size, sort of fixing the learning dynamics. And we want to use TSC um, to actually predict the model performance, um, not, on, not for computer vision, um, but for graph neural nets in a so different kind of architecture in a different domain, which is hyperparameter optimization. Um, and we actually want to predict the loss, uh, if we can, not just rank order the models. So the application area here, kind of moving from just property regression uh, to this area of neural force fields. Um, so very briefly, the goal here is to train a network, in this case, a graph neural network, 
um, that learns the potential energy surface for a molecule. So it predicts not just properties, um, but it predicts energies and forces um, of a system and allows us to speed up things like molecular dynamics uh, or sort of, um, you know, do all kinds of interesting things with a learned model instead of training a classical force field, uh, which can be very time consuming and requires um, a lot of different domain expertise um, than, than we have here and uh, is also much, much slower. So we want you know, neural force fields that can accelerate simulations and are also generalizable across maybe chemical compositions and robust. So this robustness issue um, is quite profound, but, but basically as we're sort of applying these, just like you would in any, any other deep learning domain, you have to worry about things like distribution shift um, and overfitting to training data. But the problem with trying to scale up these force fields is that uh, when we have um, training data in the form of some trajectory, molecules moving around, um, on, and you know that, that can come from kind of any physics-based sample or method, the, the higher quality, the better. Um, but those individual frames or snapshots of what the molecule geometry looks like, um, when you put them in together in a mini batch, uh, that can be very noisy. And so there's this kind of interesting result uh, from the empirical model of large batch training um, that one way to maybe understand this is that when you have very noisy mini batches, like we do in this case, uh, smaller batches um, and smaller steps give you better convergence. And we certainly see this with neural force fields that in general, the smaller the batch size, the better. Um, and that's sort of the opposite of, which is, you know, maybe a general uh, kind of known thing across some domains, um, but it's really bad <laughs> in this case. And uh, it's the opposite of the direction we want to go, right? Because we want to be training these networks faster. And certainly one way to do that um, is, is to try to move to, to larger batch sizes. And I will let um, Simon ask a, ask a question here. He's an expert. Yeah, in sorry. Sorry. Um... Yeah. This is very interesting. I have a question, you know, in, in when you when you train a neural force field, uh, you have in your targets, you have one energy target, right? And if you're training on the forces, you have three N force targets where N is the number of atoms. Couldn't it just be that your effective batch size is actually much, much larger? Because say you have a batch size of 10, but you have, you know, 10 atoms, then actually it's, you know, 10 times three N plus one, right? So um, is that maybe it? Yes, yes, I think that that's that's totally true, right? Because the the sort of information in each batch and in the loss function evaluation at each step is large, right? Because of those three n forces. So yes, so if we want to kind of treat a larger batch um, every time we add a new frame, that's now three n more forces that we're going to evaluate. So that is, yeah, I think um, a fundamental issue here, which is. Yeah, probably why these smaller batches work better. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But I, yep. I did, we, yeah. we see exactly the same thing. So this is very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So now I'm going to talk about, you know, maybe how do we start to try to escape this? Um, uh, to kind of start um, looking uh, at this, this problem, 
um, I'll consider three different models for neural force fields uh, for convenience. These are all in this neural force field um, library from Rafa's group. And roughly speaking, uh, each sort of model incorporates more physical priors than the previous one. So I'll start with Schnett, uh, which incorporates scalar features and has rotational invariance. Um, I'll look at pain, which uh, incorporates vector features. It's kind of a rung higher in the physical priors, um, you know, ladder. And then finally, SpookyNet, uh, which includes non-local interactions and some empirical co corrections that we know um, from physics. And these models are sort of roughly in a family together, I would say. Um, so, so it kind of makes the comparison a bit easier between them. And so in order to scale these networks, you know, fundamentally what we need to do uh, if we want to you know, train them faster and on more GPUs, one way to do that is, is to increase that effective batch size, uh, but without incurring this penalty um, of converging much slower, getting much worse performance. So there's this sort of heuristic uh, relating learning rate and batch size as you increase them. For these experiments, um, I'm going to look at what's called the revised MD17 data set. So it's a collection of um, data from small molecules. There are 10 molecules, and here I'm going to take 1,000 frames from each. So kind of construct a larger sort of composite data set than um, if I just looked at a single molecule, like say aspirin. Um, and for each network, I'm going to change the batch size and the learning rate. And we can see that as I increase that batch size, um, I get severe penalties as I decrease the learning rate. So you might expect this sort of linear learning rate schedule um, or scaling, right? As I increase the batch size, I want to in linearly increase the learning rate. Um, and at small batch sizes, that makes maybe less of a difference. You know, I don't incur as much of a penalty by getting learning, the initial learning rate wrong. Um, but as I scale up the batch size, then it becomes very important that I get uh, the initial learning rate right. And so in general, having a higher learning rate here um, from the ones that we tested gives you better convergence. Um, and certainly there is some effect uh, scaling the learning rate with the batch size. Um, but a cool thing here is that uh, as we scale the data set, that allows it in kind of the chemical compositions that we're considering, that allows us to get better performance um, with larger batch sizes. So we can think about it like if I'm training, say, a small neural force field on a single molecule, um, then maybe I need to do things in small batches, and I could just do that for all the molecules I'm interested in. But if we're trying to kind of scale up the model and the data set size, I can actually maybe also scale up uh, the resources um, and the training that I'm, that I'm doing uh, and ultimately sort of more efficiently uh, tackle this problem. This turns into kind of a multi-objective optimization where I wanna maximize the batch size. In general, I wanna minimize the wall time that it takes to train these networks while still minimizing uh, the end performance or the end loss. So there's, in general, a trade-off here, uh, but we can actually identify um, good candidates. And how do we um, do this with TSC? 
So like I mentioned, here's sort of a, a schematic for what training speed estimation looks like. It can be sort of thought of as the area under the training loss curve um, from just a limited amount of the training data. And again, we wanna actually predict what is gonna be the converged or final uh, validation loss that's actually based on the training loss um, from the initial part of training. So what we find, I'm showing this for Schnett, but it applies to pain and spooky net as well, uh, is that if we say take 10% of the total training that we're going to do, uh, and we calculate this TSD value from that initial 10% of training, um, we can certainly rank order the model configurations uh, almost perfectly. The rank correlation is very good. Um, and this is these different configurations are we're testing different scaling parameters. So scaling the batch size and the learning rate and trying to figure out, you know, as we scale up the training, which configurations are going to do the best. Um, so we can rank order those configurations early in training. And not only that, we can actually do a pretty good job of uh, extrapolating out and predicting what that converged loss is going to be um, for each of these networks. So TSC is kind of a strong predictor um, for the converged performance using only a very small, small percentage of training. So it allows us to sort of zero in very early on in model selection or hyperparameter optimization or these scaling experiments um, and actually predict which networks are going to perform the best, uh, which saves us a lot of time and, and budget as we're doing these experiments. Now I'll maybe transition in the last couple of minutes here to thinking about as we scale these networks up, how we measure um, different aspects of learning efficiency. So this goes back to Simon's question. I'm actually showing, I think, a wonderful plot from um, Simon's NetQuip paper here, where they look at the learning curve and the performance uh, of their neural force field model, NetQuip, um, as you give it more data. And you can think about what these different colors are as kind of building in more physical based priors if you're looking at just scalar versus vector or higher order tensor features and so so they show i think really nicely here that um the increase in physical priors uh, actually fundamentally changes the scaling behavior of this network so the network itself you know is still the same uh, but it becomes much more sample efficient uh, as you as you build in these higher order features and i think this is a great way to, to measure learning efficiency Flops is another way. Uh, it's maybe much less preferable because flops uh, can be difficult to measure um, and is generally not correlated with other things we care about, like um, time and energy consumption. Model size in terms of number of parameters is maybe also difficult to parse uh, because of things like training details and model distillation um quantization so this is maybe informative but not as informative and a sort of new way uh, that i'm interested in thinking about this is actually looking at how efficient models are with respect to the energy they consume and so i will talk about that next very briefly i guess since we're getting towards the end here uh, why would we care about energy efficiency well there, there's actually some work uh, from mila uh, on, of course, the environmental impact uh, of the energy of deep learning training, which is something probably all as scientists we care about. Um, 
but even even there, I think there's actually great progress on reducing the carbon and environmental impact of AI. Um, so I'm actually maybe not as worried about that as, as some folks are. I think a problem though is that the tools that you need to do deep learning very energy uh, efficiently and with low carbon footprint are kind of unevenly distributed. Uh, it's hard to measure these things. Um, and you know, if you're at a very large organization with lots of great engineers, maybe you can do this um, you know, very nicely, but that's maybe not widely available. I think energy is also an interesting frame to look at, especially these physics informed models, because I think it tells us something very fundamental about learning efficiency in terms of, um, you know, it couples together a, a lot of different aspects that flops and number of parameters and these other metrics don't get to. And lastly, it's sort of energy is this sort of universal framework that uh, folks from all of these different communities are familiar with, maybe in different contexts, whereas again, these other metrics might be more specific to particular fields. So if we return back to kind of the beginning, looking at um, this different variance and utilization for different networks, uh, what we find is that, that in general, and this is part of just working at a supercomputing center uh, where we actually monitor not just our own experiments, but deep learning experiments kind of across MIT, uh, we can see that you know a lot of the time the GPU is not being used. It's very underutilized, uh, even if you're kind of doing a, a normal or even extensive amount of hyperparameter tuning. So this is kind of exciting, actually, because it means we're not hardware limited in a lot of cases. There's a lot of room for improvement on the software side and the framework side. If we were hardware limited, that could be tough because hardware innovation is, is very hard. Um, but there's maybe more room for improvement and opportunity for innovation on the model side than we expect if we start thinking about energy efficiency in addition to some of these other metrics like model performance or accuracies that we usually think about. One quick uh, finding actually that came out of a lot of these experiments is that because modern scientific workflows actually don't utilize the GPU fully, um, the sort of top line hardware that we're using uh, has a sort of maximum power draw of 250 watts. We don't need that. We can actually just throttle down our hardware to 200 watts, which we've started to do at MIT. And we don't really impact the speed of training or performance of training, um, but we can get up to 10% total energy savings for our data centers uh, just by doing that. So that's kind of a quick system level um, fix here. We think about uh, back to trying to predict performances and um, you actually scale models. One way to think about doing this is so we've sort of used TSC to accelerate our scaling experiments and accelerate our hyperparameter optimization. Once we find a large network uh, that we like and that we're going to be training um, a lot and might be expensive to do so, uh, we can actually think about using TSC to predict what we expect the sort of converged performance to be and say, maybe I'll define a threshold value and say, once I'm within you know, 10%, 20% of, of that final performance, um, I can early stop the model and I can use it for all kinds of experiments uh, and get energy savings that way. Another maybe more familiar framework um, for stopping could be uh, sort of early stopping with respect to patients. So normally 
you would define something like, you know, if my model doesn't improve by this delta over so many training steps, I'll stop the model early. Uh, and here we can do that. We're, we're monitoring the energy consumption during training. We can normalize that patient's value by the energy cost of training. So again, it's a small model and small data set. You know, your tolerance could be um, such that, you know, you will train it into oblivion, right? And, and it doesn't matter. Like the energy impact uh, is not going to matter very much. But if you have a huge model, uh, you're training on you know, a billion data points, um, the marginal cost for each training step is, of course, a lot different. And that's something that you might want to consider um, as you're doing training. And thinking about what, how this reflects actual you know, kind of fundamental issues around model development and innovation, we can think about you know, how energy efficient are different models, say neural force fields, actually in production or deployment. Um, and so in this case, just like for most deep learning models, it's really inference where a lot of the costs are spent if you have a, a model that you um, actually hope to deploy and, and use for, for useful things. Here we ask the question, you know, how much would each of these various neural force fields cost if you were to do a one nanosecond 100 atom molecular dynamic simulation? with each of these. So that just relates to how many inference calls am I making with each of these models. And so in this case, uh, we're looking at, say, SpookyNet and Pain, which are, have similar model sizes. Um, and on this data set that I'm looking at, revised MD17 actually doesn't include a lot of the uh, sort of parameters and physics that SpookyNet is able to capture that Pain doesn't. So their performance is very similar, um, but pain saves 44% of the energy cost and the CO2 emissions um, for doing this kind of inference. So I think that the sort of energy aware inference and thinking about energy efficiency of models is kind of a very interesting way to compare as we build up more complex architectures, as we uh, sort of impute more physics to them, um, how much are we getting out, not only in terms of, say, learning or sample efficiency, but, but in terms of energy efficiency. In the last minute before my conclusions, I will just uh, put in a teaser for uh, the fact that we are also thinking about sort of traditional neural scaling in the context of large language models for chemical, um, for chemical generation. So we're basing this work off of GPT and asking, uh, do chemical generative models benefit from scaling and how so? So if you're interested in this, uh, there's a lot of information in, in this chart from our initial experiments. And I'd be happy to talk to anyone um, about this in the future. And this probably looks a bit more familiar uh, with the, the sort of traditional neural scaling work. Um, and that's maybe the takeaway from this part is uh, there are some surprising and interesting improvements that we see going to new regimes compared to or traditional language models. Okay, so I'll skip over this stuff, go to LitMatter for all of this interesting, uh, all of our interesting findings get built into LitMatter so you don't have to worry about it. It just, uh, you get it for free. Our data sets from all of these experiments are publicly available um, on, on mit.edu. And yeah, so these are kind of my final summary to, to wrap things up. 
Um, I think that, you know, we want to be building scientific AI that leverages key resources. Um, deep chemical models certainly do benefit from scale, which I think is exciting. And lit matter is a way for you to start investigating uh, scaling up your models very easily. Um, and I think, you know, issues like energy efficiency and scaling, you can really help us inform uh, new research directions uh, for physics informed chemical models. Here's some papers uh, that I'll share uh, after the talk if you want more details. And with that, thank you all for listening. Thank you in particular to my collaborators at Lincoln Lab and Connor Coley and Rafa Gomez Bombarelli. Please feel free to reach out to me via any of these methods. If you'd like to chat about any of this work or anything that you're doing that um, I might be interested in or that might benefit from this kind of scaling analysis. Thank you so much, Nathan. It was, <clears throat> was a great talk. Um, I hope the audience appreciate it as much as we do here. Um, any question? I know a lot of people left, but maybe a few more questions before we, we end the call. Uh, maybe not directly, well, related with a, a, a bit on a tangent. Um, you clearly have been thinking a lot about like what a foundation model could look like in this domain, in the chemistry domain. I think one thing that that for me is kind of an open question still, and you, I think you, you kind of addressed it, but I'm not, not really sure, so I'm going to ask nonetheless, is um, what would be a good pre-training task? Because I feel like that's a difficult a difficult open question because in comparison to the other domains we don't have kind of a straightforward adaption of what they're doing there to what we're doing here absolutely yeah that's a great question i think would be like i could give an entire talk on just pre-training tasks and how to um how to pick them because i think that's a huge open problem um i think that so for the say the chemical language example i gave um there it turns out to be more straightforward. We can take uh, basically the sort of next token prediction that you would traditionally do in NLP, um, and it works very well uh, for generation. For property prediction, if we're trying to train a large language model to do property prediction, it becomes much more difficult. Um, and I would say it's kind of still unclear what pre-training tasks uh, are useful there. I think that's a very open question. Um, yeah, for, for regression. The masking for generative model actually works relatively, relatively well from what you've seen so far. It does, yes. Huh. Um, okay, interesting. Thank you. Yeah, so we should have more about that soon. Awesome. Simon, have a question? Yeah, uh, yeah, really nice talk. Thank you. Um, so, have you done any experiments on scaling laws of sort of property prediction, force fields with? Um, uh, data set size or model size or compute uh, available, sort of the classical ones? Yes, for um, for neural force fields in particular? Uh, for whatever, but sort of for more the, uh, more the, you know, property prediction, sort of the geometric ones, I would say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for property prediction, um, one of the actually motivations for going into energy and force prediction was that um, you kind of saturate performance for, say, like QM9 quantum mechanical property, uh, pretty, you know, homo lumo gaps, yeah. these sort of things, um, right? You kind of saturate performance so early uh, that um, Wait, so I guess early with a, a finding. 
with respect, with respect to, to model size, data set size. And oh, okay. Users. So yeah, so a finding there, I guess, would be that um, in that regime, uh, we currently don't have uh, good ways to scale kind of beyond that. In neural force field, it actually looks much more promising. Um, and, and we should have some interesting thing, more details um, on that soon now that we have kind of developed the framework to uh, speed up these experiments. Um, there's more degrees of freedom. It's, it's more difficult to think about model size, um, I think, because concepts like width and depth uh, still apply, but there are other things, uh, of course, um, as you know, like nearest neighbor cutoff and, and yeah. other considerations. That... Sorry, just, just, I didn't know that, that, that it saturates so early for property prediction, like Q9. So what's different on, on like neural force fields? Are you just using a larger reference data set where you can sort of span more orders of magnitude or what's going on there? Yep, I think it's a combination of larger um, data sets. Uh, you can span more orders of magnitude, certainly. The tasks are maybe harder. Um, okay. Yep, yep. Okay, wow, very cool, thank you. Yeah. Um, there was a question in the chat. What are the implications of your work on, for something like OC2O uh, mm. challenge? Yep. OC2, yeah. sorry, OC2O challenge? Great question. Yep. So that is one of um, many interesting directions that I, I think I already had quite a lot <laughs> to cover here. Uh, OC20 is the Open Catalyst Project data set, um, which is, I think, a great condensed phase data set for looking at all of these issues. Um, and that's certainly something that we're very interested in. Uh, I think the implications are that catalysis, when you're looking at both small molecules and a solid state surface, becomes you know, even more complex uh, problem and, and search space. So scaling is maybe even more important. Hi, Nathan, can I ask you a follow-up? For sure. Uh, yeah, thanks for the great talk. Um, so we've talked a lot about chemistry, but do you, do you also think about these geometric deep learning models in the context of uh, structural biology, for example? Mm. That's a great question. Yeah, so I personally um, have not looked at these questions in the context of structural biology. Uh, I've I've looked at um, proteins in particular as targets for you know binding small for um, identifying small molecules that bind to them. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that you know, certainly with the scale and size um, of nucleotides and, and proteins and polypeptides and all these sort of systems. Um, okay. I think that that's an exciting area, definitely a really, really exciting area to, to look at these issues. Great, uh, yeah, thanks for the talk. Yeah, thank you.